theyeshiva.net. Henry Kissinger is considered probably uh, the greatest diplomat and negotiator of the 20th century. For many years, he served as the Secretary of State of the U.S. He's originally a German, a German Jew, who ultimately reached uh, great political heights here in this country. Whether cherished or loathed, people could not deny his uh, skills at diplomacy and negotiation. He coined a phrase they attributed to him called shuttle diplomacy. And they once asked him what shuttle diplomacy is. He said, it's basically using my diplomatic skills to get a Siberian peasant to marry Rockefeller's daughter. Or to get Rockefeller's daughter to marry a Siberian peasant. They said, it's impossible. How do you do it? He said, well, if your name is Kissinger, everything is possible. He said, how do you do it? He says, well, I take a plane to Siberia. I meet the real Russian Siberian peasant, and I say, I have a great American girl for you. He says, I'm crazy? Why would I go for an American woman? There's great, great women right here in Russia. And I say, no, no, no. She's not just a simple American girl. This is Rockefeller's daughter. Ah, that changes everything. Okay. Then I take my plane to Switzerland. The Swiss bank is looking for a new president. I say, I have an exceptional president for you. He's a Siberian peasant. They say, you're mad, Mr. Kissinger? President of the Swiss bank? He says, no, no, no. He's Rockefeller's son-in-law. Ah, that changes everything. Okay. Now I have to go to Mr. Rockefeller. So I go to Rockefeller and I make the proposition. I say, I have a wonderful groom, potential groom for your daughter. He's a peasant who grew up in Siberia. Mr. Kissinger, to insult my intelligence and my daughter in such a brute fashion. No, no, no. He's the president of the Swiss bank. Ah, that changes everything. He calls his daughter, Helene, Helene, come in. We have a great potential fiancé for you. Really, who? He's the president of the Swiss bank. She looks at her father. Bankers, snobby, pompous, arrogant, self-centered, money-hungry, narcissistic, care nothing about society or humanity. Everything is money, money, and prestige and status. Never will I marry such a fellow. He says, no, 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 no. He's a peasant from Siberia. She says, ah, that changes everything. <laughs> and so the Shidduch happens, I share with you this anecdote because of the story, one of the more enigmatic and ambiguous stories in all of Chumash and really in all of the Tanakh that is recorded at the end, at the grand finale of Parshas Bahaloischa. Parshas, the portion of Bahaloischa generally is loaded with many a narrative that require lots of decoding 
explanation and application. But probably from all of them, what takes the cake, so to speak, is the story at the end. And what's really so strange about it is that the Torah is obviously intentionally ambiguous as to completely leave us in the dark as to know what happened. What we know is that suddenly out of the blue there's a conversation about Moshe Rabbeinu's marriage by his sister-in-law. Now we all know from family experiences that very often sisters of brothers have issues with the girls they marry. That's a common phenomenon. You can hear conversations in families. One sister turns to the other brother and says, I can't believe who our brother ended up with. How did this happen? I make a bar mitzvah. I make a chasana. I took a hotel. I hosted her and her kids for three days. All she did was complain. A whole weekend. Nothing was good enough. Not the rooms, not the tables. I don't know what, and you know, our brother is a changed man. And so this happens in families all the time. People analyze sisters-in-law and brothers-in-law quite extensively and quite dramatically. That's a common phenomenon. But when you look at this story, suddenly, out of the blue, there's no, there's no incident that precedes it. Nothing dramatic seemed to occur, at least in a, in a revealed fashion. Suddenly, from nowhere, the Torah says, and I'm going to quote, so you can hear the ambiguity, Vatadaber Aaron umiriam b'moisha. I'm sorry, Vatadaber Miriam v'aren b'moisha. That order is important. Miriam and Aaron begin speaking about Moshe. Now, right away, one's ears perk up. What is happening? They're just analyzing Moshe. So the Pasuk doesn't allow us to doubt what they spoke about. What did they speak about Moshe? Not about him personally, but about the Kushis. That's how the Torah describes the Kushis, Kush, the Kushite woman which he married, Kiisha Kushis Lakach. Because by the way, he married a woman from Kush. So it's not that they were talking about something that didn't happen. They spoke about this woman that he took that he married. What did they say? Who is this woman? What was the issue? Guessing game. Doesn't say. We know they spoke about his marriage. What? Why now? We don't know. Vayoimru, what did they say? So you would think now you would get some details. It only makes it more mysterious. They say, Aaron and Miriam say, Miriam and Aaron say to each other, we can't understand, is it only Moshe who hears the voice of the divine to whom God speaks? He spoke also to us. And the pastor concludes the conversation and said, and God heard. And God heard. And now the story is over. They had a conversation. We're supposed to figure out what they said about his wife, but they said something. We know that they complained that God speaks to them too. So there was something that had to do with that. And all we know is that Hashem heard the conversation. 
Now the Torah makes a shift and also very uncharacteristically and unusually starts analyzing the personality of Moshe. Now anyone who learns Chumash at this point, you've known Moshe for a very long time. Moshe was introduced first in the beginning of Shmois during his birth. And since then there is not a single Parsha where he does not play a central role. Because he was chosen as the leader, the Rebbe, the Redeemer, the Shepherd of the Jewish people. So he is the man who, so to speak, as he says, he stands in between the people and God. Every parsha, his name is mentioned, not once, but many times, besides Tetzavah, where his name is not mentioned, but it's still all about, he still plays a central role in the parsha. So you would think when he's growing up, you'll give us a tribute to his personality. Why was he chosen? Why him? Why nobody else? But we know nothing. We know a few stories about him when he was young. And we know that God chooses him to go redeem the Jewish people. And so we lived with Moshe. He came to Egypt. He, he ran from He was born in Egypt. He ran from Egypt. He came back to Egypt. He confronted Pari. He took the Jewish people out. He went through with took, took them through the sea, took them to the mountain, broke broke the broke the tablets, told them to build a mishkan, communicated to them their heritage, their Torah, and their mitzvahs. And now they're already on the journey. Quite a while after they left Egypt, more than a year, Aaron and Miriam are speaking about Moshe's wife, and suddenly the Torah goes off on a tan. Or it seemed the Torah goes off to a different discussion and starts analyzing Moshe and says, "Vaish Moshe anov ma'od mikaladam adam." Moshe was the humblest person from all people on the face of the earth. You wouldn't find such a humble person. How does that come in? That also comes in here to the story. What happens next in the fourth Pasuk is, suddenly, Pisaim, suddenly Hashem turns to Moshe and Aaron and Miriam, all three siblings, and asks them to go out, to go out of their tents or wherever they were, to the Oyal Mayad, to the sanctuary, to the Mishkan. And that's when... God speaks to Aaron and Miriam exclusively. And he goes on to extol the unique virtues of Moshe Rabbeinu. And he said, you are prophets. And I speak to prophets. But loichein avdi Moshe. Moshe is in a different category. And he describes him in four words, b'chol beisi nemonhu. He is faithful throughout my home which is obviously a euphemism, an expression. He is faithful, Nehman, loyal, dedicated, faithful, trustworthy, Nehman, in my home. I speak to him mouth to mouth. I speak to him in a vision and not in riddles. He beholds the image of the divine. How were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moshe? And the Pasuk, the story continues... God gets upset and leaves. And that's the end of the story. Anybody reading this, you read the verses and you're like, there's a lot going on, but what happened? What ha- why don't you tell us what happened? The next scene, we know the next scene is that Miriam becomes a mitzayras, a condition that, we would, that would be somewhat similar, although not the same as leprosy. She's quarantined according to the laws of leprosy outside of the camp for seven days. Moshe beseeches God to heal her and he prays for her. Ana, Kel Na, Rifa, Nala. Miriam ultimately is healed. Seven days later she comes back and we move on. And yet, 
It's one of the things that we are told to remember forever. Those who say every morning the Sheish Schirais, the six mitzvahs that the Torah says to remember, one of them is Zacher, Esasher, Asa Hashem Alekechel, Miriam, Baderech, Remember what Hashem did to Miriam on your journey out of Egypt. Now the other five, we can appreciate well why it's important to remember. The exodus of Egypt. Maimed Har Sinai, the standing at Sinai. There's Shabbos, Zachar Hashem HaShabbos Lakatsha. There's the story of Amalek. There's the Chet HaEgel. Why was it so important to know about an individual incident that happened with one person? It wasn't a national event. They didn't define the Jewish people. Most people didn't even know the story. They probably saw Miriam's illness at some point. Perhaps yes, perhaps not. But this was a very private, intimate family story by nature. It was a conversation between Miriam and Aaron. What are we trying to remember? The, commentator, the commentators debate this story. As usual, everything in uh, every story in Chumash is debated by many commentators. Because it lends itself to so many different interpretations. The first question is, what happened? What were they talking about? If you read the Pasuk without any, any uh, preconceived notions or any information preceding your reading of the Pasuk, it just says that Miriam and Aaron spoke about Moshe, about the Kushite woman whom he married, because he married a Kushite woman. That's what they spoke about. Without any other interpretation, what do you hear from these words? They didn't like her. They felt something was inappropriate, something was wrong. Rashi, which has become the most famous commentary on Chumash and in this story as well, says that the Pasuk is not telling you the end of the story. It's one of those brief psukim that delete the punchline, or at least part of the punchline. As Rashi puts it, he married her and he separated from her. That's what upset Miriam so deeply. Rashi needs to explain this because he's trying to understand what they were lamenting about, what they were upset, and why suddenly now. So Rashi, based on the Medrash, and this is the truth, oh, the truth is, this is the Targum Unculus. The Unculus Aramaic translation on Chumash also inserts those words. He married a beautiful woman. Rashi also says kushis is a euphemism. Kushis means dark. So Rashi says, who is this woman? It's Tzipira. It's his wife. We know that he married Tzipira because it's a story in Shmois. He was a fugitive from Egypt. He came to Midian. He met Tzipira, Yisra's daughter, and he married her. And they had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. We know this a long time ago. What happened to that marriage? So what happened to that marriage? And this is how Rashi explains why it, put, why it gets put into the Torah right here. It's quite an intense story. Moshe Rabbeinu was complaining to Hashem that he's a lonely man. He can't carry the burden of the nation alone. So Hashem says, you need a delegate. And he asks him to choose 70 people, 70 great human beings who will help him carry the burden of leadership. And all of them become prophets. There are two more by the names of Eldad and Meidad who also start prophesizing. A young child comes to Moshe and starts screaming and says, two people are prophesizing, they're not part of the group that you chose, Eldon and Medat. 
And Yehoshua tells Moshe Rabbeinu that they have to be incarcerated. This is a threat to your authority. And Moshe responds in those immortal, noble words. If you could say one of the most noble expressions in all of the Tanakh, Hamekane Atali Umiyitein Kol Am Hashem Nevi'im Kiyitein Hashem Esruchay Aleim. Yehoshua, you're jealous for me. My desire is that the entire nation of God becomes prophets that Hashem confers His Spirit on all of them. I really am not perturbed that there are two new prophets. And the next scene, Miriam and Aaron are now talking about their sister-in-law. Vu, vos, ven, we, what? Mela after Hashem brachis. There's a lot of tension that built up after Abba Mitzvah, fine. Even after a bris, the wrong she gave the wrong name. Okay, we get it. We know. Vu vosven. Suddenly. So Rashi fills in the gaps and says that when the person, the child, came running to Moshe and said, Elder and Medad have become two prophets, Sipoira, his wife, almost what you would call today an unconscious, a Freudian slip. She just, it just came out of her and said, Woe to their wives. Woe to their wives. And Miriam, who we all know was a sensitive woman, a sensitive girl, and now a sensitive woman, heard this. And uh, she grilled her sister-in-law. Why do you say this? And that's when Sipira, for the first time, sheared with Miriam about her own personal fate that Moshe, who was, so to speak, owned by the nation, has separated from her in terms of physical relations. Now understand what this means. If Miriam didn't know about it, that means they were in the same tent. They were in the same home. This wasn't the classic separation you hear about. It was a separation that only two people knew about. Tzipoyer and Moshe, they were living together. If not, Miriam would have known right after Sinai that Moshe and Tzipoyer are not together. She never knew this. Tzipoyer never told anybody. Moshe told, never told anybody. So Moshe and Tzipoyer, Moshe didn't just run. Moshe and Tzipoyer were loyally married. And the Gemara discusses that Moshe Rabbeinu was told before Matan Torah to tell all the Jewish men and women that for three days before Sinai, they should physically separate, not to have intimacy. After Matan Torah, Hashem told Moshe, tell the Jewish people, go back to your tents, meaning, go back to normal marital life. Va'ata, you stay with me. Moshe inferred from that, on his own, that if he's going to be a prophet every moment, he must remain in a particular state. But he was with Sipira. That's clear from the story. If not, Miriam would have known earlier. But Sipira cried out and said, their marriage is never going to be the same. My husband belongs to the people. He belongs to four million people. doesn't belong to me as a private, intimate man. Very dramatic moment. Miriam, who's again the sensitive girl or woman, says, Sipira, I'll take care of my brother. <laughs> I'll take care. I always took care of him. I, I told my father what to do with him. I told my mother what to do with him. I told the daughter of Paray what to do with him. 
I watched, I, I, I saw this kid. I saw him born. We put him in a casket. You know, I watched him. He's, he's, my, he's my baby. Which is, of course, why after the splitting of the sea, it's Miriam who the Torah dedicates a separate story about how she led all the women in song and dance with the tupim and the mechoilas, with the drums and the tambourines. Why suddenly Miriam? Why couldn't it be part of the national narrative? And the answer, of course, is that for Miriam, it was the circle. You know, mechoil in Hebrew means a dance. It also means a circle. It was a circle being completed because she is the one who preceded Moshe, the one who prophesied to her parents, you're going to have a child who will save the day and save the people. So Miriam naturally tells Tzipira, I'll take care of it. What does an older sister do? What do, you, what do you, the older sisters in your family do when you see that your baby, uh, your baby brother is not behaving? What do you do? Yeah, You run to your other brother, right? You run to your other brother. You send a text and you say, emergency meeting, I have to meet you tonight. We've got to shape up issues in the family. So she runs to her brother Aaron. So this is how Rashi understands the story. And they talk about Moshe. They weren't bad-mouthing Moshe. They were trying to solve a challenging situation because of their sensitivity. So to, to Tzipira, so when it says they spoke about the woman, it's not that they spoke about the woman, they didn't approve of the marriage. What they didn't approve of is what, how he was behaving in the marriage. And of course Hashem tells them that you're great people, but you don't, you don't know everything about Moshe Rabbeinu. Somehow, this story is unresolved. What happens at the end? Does Tzipira feel better afterwards? Well, her sister-in-law Miriam know about the story now. Aaron knows about the story. Moshe will not defend himself because he's un of Moed, he's humble. And what we also know is that Miriam remains outside of the camp for seven days. Usually people don't put two and two together. Miriam, those seven days, was a lonely woman. Perhaps Tzipira never felt alone again because her sister-in-law knew what her life was like. And the moment she had Miriam, who just knew about her story, everything changes. Sometimes the greatest antidote to loneliness is not necessarily remedying the situation and the circumstances, but simply sharing it with somebody who gets it. Could Miriam have gotten it? Not really. She probably had a very different type of marriage. She was married to a man named Kalev, who was a very different type of person. But Miriam was seven, right after the story, Miriam was in isolation for seven days. Now being in isolation for seven days is not the same isolation like in a marriage. But Miriam, right afterwards, was this completely disconnected. This is part of the story. I suspect it's part of the story. And as far as we know, life, life moves on. Many of the commentators struggle with Rashi's interpretation. First of all, why didn't you call her by her name Tzipoyer? Why did she suddenly become a Kushite woman? We know what Kush is. Kush is Ethiopia or Sudan, right? You're familiar in geography, Kush is the Hebrew name either for Ethiopia or Sudan. She was not from Ethiopia, she was not from Sudan. She was from a place called Midian, which is a completely different region. Why is she called Kushis? Rashi struggles. He says she was so beautiful. So some say Kushis, just like, uh, which means a dark woman, just like when somebody is dark, it's so visible, you can't argue with it. That's how powerful her beauty and glitter was. 
You have to understand why would the Torah want to point that out right here in the story. Perhaps they understood that there was something else going on. The Ebenezer says that due to the region where she lived, she was actually, she had a very dark complexion. That's why she's called Kushis. He agrees that it's Tzipayr. The problem is, however, still, why would the Torah not use the name Tzipayr? Number two, number two, number one. Number two, why don't you tell the story? They spoke about the woman that he married, and he separated. The Torah doesn't want to be explicit about it, you have to say. You have to somehow figure that out. How are you supposed to figure it out? So a lot of the commentators struggle with this comment of Rashi. The Rashbam, who follows also a very literal interpretation, says it's, it's impossible to put it into these words. The Rashbam associates it with a completely different story. And that is that Moshe, when he ran from Egypt, he went to Midian, somehow he ended up somewhere else. Because he came back to Egypt when he was an older person. He stood in front of Pyre when he was 80. And at some point, he ran from Egypt when he was a younger man. So where was he all these years? So there's a tradition that he was in, a, in Kush, in Ethiopia or Sudan. And that's where he married a woman. That's who they were talking about. There's another issue of Yosef Ibn Kaspi, who has a completely different interpretation in this Pasuk. And he says the Torah is not talking about Tzipayra. And he brings another very interesting proof. It says they spoke about Moshe concerning the Kushite woman whom he married. Because he married a Kushite woman. If it's talking about Sipira, we know that he married Sipira. Why do you have to repeat yourself? They spoke, imagine it would say, Miriam and Aaron spoke about Moshe because he married, uh, spoke about Moshe concerning his wife Sipira whom he married because he married Sipira. Really? We know that. So Ibn Kaspi, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kaspi, he lived in province in southern France in the 14th century. He has a whole different interpretation. He says that he completely disagrees with all these commentators who insert words that are missing. He says this is not a way how you could learn Torah and everybody could do whatever they want and misconstrue every verse. They say, oh, there's a word missing. Thank you. He completely, he's vehemently opposed to the interpretation given by probably most of the Mepharshim. And he says... Moshe married a second woman. There was another Kushite woman who married in addition to Tzipira. And Miriam and Aaron were very upset about this. And the Torah doesn't say why. And he says, we don't know why. I'm explaining this to you to show how extreme the interpretations are because the Pasuk is so nebulous about what happened. But today I want to focus on one more interpretation that I found really fascinating, very applicable, extremely relevant to many lives, and also inspiring to a certain degree. And it reads, quite interestingly, very, it reads very well, it, it, can, it, it fits, very, I should say, it fits very well with a pretty straightforward reading of the text. This interpretation is in a sefer called Moshev Skenim Labali Hatosvos. So you're talking about quite an early commentary 
of the Bali HaToysmas. The Bali HaToysmas means an addition, like Lahosif, Toysmas, an addition. In every standard Talmud, in every standard Gemara, you'll have on one side a commentary of Rashi, and on the other side a commentary called Toysmas. Toysmas is not one person. Toysmas means an addition. Rashi, who lived in the 11th century in France, Rashi lived in the 1000s and early 1100s in France, had three daughters. He didn't have any sons, as far as we know. And these daughters gave birth to extraordinary children who founded a whole school of thought known in Jewish history as the Bale Hatoisvis, those who added. They were all mostly Ashkenazic Jews, meaning they came from France and Germany, from the house of Rashi. And over one or two hundred years, close to two centuries, they developed a whole method of learning. And they crown every page of Gemara, many pages of Gemara, with their commentary, including many arguments with their own grandfather, or great-grandfather, or teacher. This was the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and their students, not only family, from the house of Rashi. They also have commentary on Chumash. You have Das Kenim in Mikrodos, you have Das Kenim of Bali HaToysvus. One of the commentaries is known as Moishev Skenim Mi Bali HaToysvus. These were authored in the 12th and 13th century in France. And they offer a new interpretation to this whole story. And what they follow, what they say is quite fascinatingly, a very different twist. And again, Rashi does not agree with this. Rashi has his interpretation that Miriam was taking up the honor and dignity of Tzipora as an older sister together with Aaron. Even though God got upset, their intentions were very, uh, were very positive. In fact, were very noble and very sensitive. That's Rashi's interpretation. It's similar to the Targum Unculus. It says this in, uh, you have, uh, the Evan Ezra has this commentary. Then you have the second commentary I said from the Rajbam that he married a Kushite woman from, from Ethiopia when he was running away from Egypt. You have, uh, you have the Targum Yoinesen Benuziel who also supports that. The Rajbam has a support in Yoinesen Benuziel. You have Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kaspo who said he married a second woman and they were upset about that. Now we come to the Moshe of Skenim. I'm going to read to you what he says. Harim Farish. Rabbeinu Yitzchak, probably the grandson of Rashi, says, The literal meaning is, Aaron and Miriam spoke about Moshe. What was their issue? The exact opposite issue. And it's important to learn this, to understand how these sensitive topics are inherent to the earliest moments of Jewish history. And how sometimes great people can develop certain perspectives, not because they're bad people, but because they genuinely feel this is the right thing. Aaron and Miriam said the following, I quote, Can a pious man like our brother marry a non-Jewish woman? Can you say God told him to do this? God spoke to us as well. And the re says, Amru Miriam and Aaron told Moshe, It's time for him to marry another woman 
who comes from a Jewish family lineage. And let go the woman who he's married to now, who was a Midianite woman, not from a Jewish family. And Moshe refused, arguing with his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron. What is their interpretation? They spoke about the Isha Hakushis Asherlok. And according to the Moshe of Skenim, it's also Tzipoira. Not that he was separated from her. On the contrary, they wanted he should separate. What was the issue? What perturbed them? So let's recall the circumstances of Moshe's marriage to his wife. This goes back to Shmois. Moshe was a fugitive. He was running away from the sword of Parai. He arrives to a place called Midian. He meets the seven daughters of Yisrael who were being bothered and harassed at a well. He saves them. Who is Yisrael? Yisrael is a pagan priest. As our sages famously say, there was not a single idolatry in the world that he did not master and did not worship. Moshe, under these circumstances, wants to get married. Yisroi offers him his daughter, and Moshe marries Tzipira. Where was Moshe at the time? He was a fugitive, he was a refugee, he was penniless, he had no family, he had no home, he had no community, and he marries Tzipira. Come Miriam and Aaron and say, but today, the circumstances are completely different. He is the greatest man of the generation. He's a prophet. He's a king. He's the man chosen by God to lead the Jewish people. He took them out of the Egypt. He took them out of Egypt. He molded them into a nation. He gave them the Torah, the, the blueprint for life. Doesn't Moshe now deserve to marry a woman from Jewish royal blood? The fact is that Moshe Rabbeinu married a woman who grew up as a non-Jew. Her father was one of the top pagan priests in the region. She knew nothing about Jewish life, nothing about Jewish culture, nothing about Jewish existence. As they say in Yiddish, sepasnesht. Marriage should be min b'minoi. Moshe deserves a spiritual princess just like he is. And Tzipoira wasn't that person. Tzipoira had her quality, but she wasn't that person. She wasn't the Siberian peasant I spoke about, but she was a Midianite non-Jewish girl who grew up in paganism. That's who she was. And here people were looking. Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabban Shalkal Yisrael, was the father of all the prophets. And his wife, you say, wow, where does she come from? Which Beis Yaakov did she go to? By Sruchel, by Sarab, by Sans, by Schana, by Sirifka. I don't want to discriminate. She went into this school, that school. Who's her Zayde, who was a Baba, really? Wow, he was the chief rabbi of Bialystok, really, of Varsha. And he said, ah, Who are your sisters? Who are your brothers? It's so nice to meet you. Tell us about your family. And Sepira would say, uh, My father really, uh, you know, he's. Uh, He's in an ashram. He's 20 years. He goes to one ashram. Then he goes to a monastery. He jumps around from God to God <laughs> and so forth. And it seemed like there's something off here. This is Moshe Rabbeinu. And therefore they told Moshe, this was good when you were a fugitive. Now you should remarry. That's how the Moshe of Skenim understands the story. At least 
a woman who grew up among the Jews, saturated with the Jewish culture. Somebody who knows the difference between Knedlach and Herring. Between Chalupzus and Kishka. Or whatever it represents on many levels. They felt it's inappropriate for a spiritual giant, the spiritual leader of the generation, to have as a soulmate a person of such poor and impoverished lineage. Moshe refused. Why did Moshe refuse? Moshe told Miriam and Aaron he would never ever leave his wife Tzipira. Why not? So the Moshe of Skanim quotes how he understands the debate. Moshe said, She married me when I was penniless. I had nothing. Now I'm a king. Now he's a king. He will never divorce her now. That's why Hashem describes Moshe with these words. He is the loyalist person in my entire home. From all the adjectives that the Rebbeinu Shalelem, the master of the world, chooses about Moshe, Nemon. What does the word Nemon? Nemon doesn't mean holy. Nemon doesn't mean transcendental. Nemon doesn't mean heavenly. Nemon doesn't mean sacred. Nemon means trustworthy. Vizak manaf Yiddish Nemon? Bagloipt. Bagloipt is nice. Getrai. Faithful, getrai. Bagloipt means you're honest, like in terms of business, a word is a word, but that's not what he's talking about here. Obviously, it's part of that. Neman here is loyalty, getraishaft. Absolute and unwavering dedication. You never ever betray trust. Why does Hashem choose this adjective? Because basically what Moshe was telling his siblings is... You guys don't understand Sipira. I was without anything. She didn't marry me because Moshe Rabbeinu. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I was a nobody. I had nothing. I didn't even know if I'm ever going to see my family again. I grew up in royalty by non-Jews. I didn't live with my family. Then I decided to do the right thing and save a Jew and I had to run away. I had nothing. I had the clothes that I was wearing. They even called him when Yisrael said, who was it? They said, Ish Mitzri. They called him an Egyptian man. She didn't marry me because my father was Amram, who was the Gadol Hadar, the Rambam says, the great giant of the generation. And Amram comes, of course. Amram is a son of Kahas. And Kahas is a son of Levi. And Levi is a son of Yaakov, Yitzhak, and Avram. And Levi was chosen as the tribe of holiness. Even Paroi didn't demand that the tribe of Levi works. He gave them the ability to segregate themselves and study. Even Pari recognized that they should be treated differently. This is probably Yosef's credit because Yosef allowed the priests of Egypt at the time to be treated differently. And as a result of that, Pari allowed the tribe of Levi to remain spiritual even within the enslavement of Egypt. Amram was considered the prophet of the generation. His wife Yecheved was one of the great personalities of the generation. Miriam and Aaron were prophets. Moshe comes to Midian and Sipira didn't know about all of this. Why did Tzipira marry me, Moshe said. She married me for one reason, my character. My internal character. Now you want that because I have risen to such prominence and leadership, I should look at Tzipira and say, you're not good enough. I need somebody with yichas, with distinguished lineage. Moshe completely rejected the thought that Miriam and Aaron communicated to him. He said, no way, she is mine, she's my wife.
So when Hashem wants to describe to Miriam and Aaron who Moshe is, He says, His ibigegebenkeit, his getreishaft, his dedication, his loyalty, his faithfulness and his devotion is unparalleled. For Moshe, nothing Hashem was saying would trump, would be more important than this quality. Here was the wife of his youth, the woman who married him when he was vulnerable and broke and had nothing. Nothing ultimately mattered more. So you'll tell me, but shouldn't the Navi marry a woman who comes from a similar family? The fact that he came from the priestly family of Levi and she came from a pagan household. The fact you can imagine when Yisra came to visit what the people would say. <laughs> what an interesting father-in-law he has. He was the greatest leader of the generation who speaks to Hashem face to face. She came from a family of idolaters. So there was no family dynamic over there of Yiddishkeit. This was meaningless to him ultimately. Why? Because what mattered more than anything was her loyalty to him, which inspired his loyalty to her. But Hashem adds more than that. He says he's a real prophet. He speaks with me face to face and he sees my image. How does that contribute to the understanding of the story. What Hashem seems to be telling them, according to this interpretation, is this. People without God create new ones. You see, sometimes people, you'll meet people that say, oh, I don't believe, I don't worship any, I don't worship God, I don't believe in God. Well, everyone worships something. <laughs> the question is only what you worship. Either you worship the real God or you create other things to worship. Everybody worships a God. They just have different names for it. In life, you worship something. Life is tough. The world is challenged. A lot of competing instincts going on in everybody's psyche. We end up worshiping something. I know no person who doesn't worship. The question is what you worship. Do you worship your ego? Do you worship your addictions? Do you worship money? Do you worship validation? Do you worship fame? Do you worship your insecurities? Do you worship social conformity? Do you worship peer pressure? I told you they once asked a 104-year-old woman, what's the advantage of living to this age? So she said, less peer pressure. (laughs) We worship. What about fear? Fear becomes a god for many people. It dictates much of our life, just like God. Fear masters. We worship because we're human beings. We are mortal human beings. When somebody doesn't worship God, they create new ones to worship. And this is what Hashem is saying about Moshe Rabbeinu. Pel boy. This is not just Moshe is a very nice person and a warm person. It's because of his intimate relationship with Hashem that allowed him to cultivate this perspective. It's because of his intimacy with God, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that allowed him to love and be sensitive and close to his wife in this way. People who don't have God in their lives, as I said, create new ones. So they do things for other people. Other people sometimes becomes our, become our gods. The role that God is supposed to play, other people start playing. Sometimes the community, sometimes certain individuals. But God, we still worship. It's just a different God. It has a different name. 
the Balshemtov's father. I spoke Shvuas when the Balshemtov was five years old. He lost his parents, and his father on his deathbed, his name was Rebbe Eliezer, and he told his son, Mamish, moments before he passed away, he told him two things. He said, "Zos nishmoira habin from Cain mention from Cain's achnish toisa de meibristen. Zos libab bin yed nid mit ein ganze Herz und Neshama. Don't fear anybody or anything but God. Love every Jew with every fiber of your soul." And those became the two pillars that guided him, and inspired his entire transformation of the Jewish landscape. But when the Baal Shem Tov's father told him, don't fear anything or anybody but God, it's not two separate things. It's not, I don't want you to be afraid of anybody. And I also want you to be afraid of God. It's dependent one on another. How could you not be afraid of anybody? There's always somebody you should be afraid of if you're normal. I could be afraid of my boss. Even somebody who has all the money and affluence in the world, there's somebody, always the one person who's a little richer and you're trying to get to his level, you're trying to flatter him, you want him to become an investor. The question is where the bar is, but everybody worships somebody. So what do you mean don't fear anybody? How can you not fear anybody? People have a lot of power in this world. How could I not fear anybody? I shouldn't fear this one. I should, what do you mean? They could do this, they could do this, they could threaten this. The answer is, if you fear God, then you have to fear nobody. If not, you have to fear somebody if you're a normal person. Unless you're completely meshugan, then you've got to fear yourself. So what happens is, people often do things for other people. Their parameter of right and wrong is often how it will look for my neighbors, for my relatives, for my siblings, for my nephews, for my community, for my friends. We often become busy with impressions we want everything should look good. Appearances often matter much more than truth. In other words, appearances become my new God. That is what I worship. My decision-making process, how to go about something, what to do, what not to do, what comes into my decision process, not the real God. What comes into my decision process is, as they say in Yiddish, vas vetmen zogen. You ever heard that expression? What are they going to say? That becomes my God. That's what I worship. And for this, I will often decide vital, make vital decisions about myself, my loved ones, my children. Moshe was on the opposite extreme. All that mattered to him was truth, nothing but the truth. Truth and more truth and yet more truth. The petty considerations of what looks good, what sounds good, what all the yachnas on the block are going to say was as important to him as another Yiddish quip, they were as relevant to him as the snow of 2003. You remember the snow of 2003? Not here, in New Zealand. That's how important these things were to him. As important as the snow that fell 20 years ago in Antarctica. They simply didn't mean anything to him. He was un of ma'oid. That's why the Torah says he was the humblest person on earth. He didn't need the primadonna of the century, Miss America. Moshe Rabbeinu cared for someone about whom he can say the same words. In my house, she is loyal. And in her house, I am loyal. Because God could say about both of them, in my home, she's loyal. I met recently a rabbi who uh, told me a very moving personal tale about himself. 
His daughter is a very fine and lovely young woman. He comes from a very prominent family of rabbis of dozens of generations, literally. Very prominent European rabbis of particular descent. And she met a very fine, wonderful, wise, dedicated young man. And as I said, she comes from like a family of, I would say, uh, what some people would like to call aristocracy within the Jewish religious world. Not Rebish, no. Different, uh, different group. There are other aristocrats in the Jewish world. <laughs> the boy she met, the boy she met is a convert. He's a ger. Both of his parents and all of his siblings and of course his grandparents are not Jewish. He converted. Uh, they decided to get married. The rabbi told me that he and his wife were absolutely crushed. I thought to myself, he tells me these words, I thought to myself, I'm going to be photographed at the wedding with my mechutin. My mechutin is not Jewish. What are my siblings going to say? What are my uncles going to say? What are my aunts going to say? What are all my friends going to say? This is what he did. He couldn't do better. This is, a, this is what I was thinking. And he said, I'm being open with you and honest with you. This went through my mind. And I spoke to my daughter. And she said, this is what I want. <laughs> and uh, he tried to convince her out of it. And his wife tried to convince her. They sent her to a therapist, of course. And then another therapist. I said, what did the therapist say? The therapist said, she really likes him. <laughs> it's not an illness. It's not trauma. It's not insecurity. She's not crazy. She's not try- she really thinks this boy... Is, will be a great marriage partner. The rabbi told me these words. He said, I sat down with myself and I thought about it. And then I told myself, if I am opposing this marriage because I think the relationship won't work or it's not good for my daughter, kudos onto me and my wife. But if I'm opposing this relationship because of my own phobias, because of the fact, that we will marry a family with parents that are not Jewish and grandparents that are not Jewish. No Judaism in the family. He himself, the boy himself converted. He was born as a non-Jew. And that's the sole reason we're opposing it. Not because of the quality of the relationship. I have to quit my job in the rabbinate. He has a very big community. I decided I have to quit my job because I am simply an absolute hypocrite. I always preach from the pulpit that we're all God's children. Every soul has infinite value. I always repeat the psukim of the Torah that converts to Judaism have to be treated with absolute dignity, respect, and love. And here I am doing the exact opposite thing. He went to his own father the potential grandfather. And uh, <laughs> he went to consult him. His father is his mentor. And he told him the story. My, my daughter met Ploini Almoini. He's a convert. I'm struggling with it. Therapy is really not working. It's not a psychological issue. She really likes this boy. He likes her. They want to get married. And uh, what should I do? 
And his father told him <laughs> that uh, one of his siblings had a similar situation. <laughs> one of this, the father of the bride, one of his siblings had a similar situation. And he consulted his Rebbe, who rebuked him for falling prey to externalities and not issues of substance. So he said, listen, that's what I have to say. He was shocked that his father would tell this to him. He didn't think his father had that attitude. So the rabbi told me, said, Rabbi Jacobson, I decided to embrace the situation from an authentic, divine perspective, not from a social PR vantage point. The social conversation, I decided may play a role somewhere in my consciousness, but I will not allow it to dictate my life. I march down the oil with joy, pride, admiration for my daughter and for her soulmate. I knew that he was a really great person, a wonderful, wonderful human being, a mensch, a real Yereshamayim, a real God-fearing person, and a Ben Torah, dedicated to Torah. I knew how dignified and refined he was. I met him and I saw it. And he told me that that chuppah, when my daughter was mar- got married to this boy, he said it was one of my most intimate moments with God, with God of truth. He said that was a moment when I felt an intimacy with Hashem that I didn't feel at other moments. And I understood him very well because that's what Hashem says about Moshe. Bechol beisi nemanhu. In my entire f- house, he is the most faithful. A woman once told me she grew up in a very uh, religious Hasidic community and one of her children struggled a lot with Judaism. And he married somebody fast and pressure-oriented marriage and they got divorced. And then he met another girl from a very different type of background, very different type of lifestyle, but it worked for him. They were both committed and growing together in Yiddishkeit and they got married and she told me all of her friends and relatives came to the wedding, and on her, their faces, it seemed like they were coming to a shiva house. They were almost like there to comfort her on the Nebuchadnezzar situation that her son ended up with such a girl. And they like looked, you know, with this feeling of empathy, you know. We still know you're a good person, and we'll still talk to you like one of those. And she said, and I felt bad for them, because for me, it was the happiest night in my life. This does not mean, by the way, I think I have to emphasize it because people sometimes are really clueless and they repeat back to me what I said. This does not mean that a family is not important. (laughs) This does not mean that who a person's parents are, grandparents are, siblings are, are not important. It's very important. What this means is that the most important question concerning family and lineage is only one question. How does it contribute to the character of the person? your daughter or your son are marrying. When the issue becomes more about family than character, more about externals than internal nature, more about what the street is going to think and what this one is going to say, more than about if your daughter and son are going to be truly happy in this relationship, then we have replaced the God of truth with the God of of appearances. So is Yichus important? Is family important? Is background important? 
everything is important, anything that contributes. But what makes it important is what it does to the person. Not independent idols that people worship that really have very little consequence on the marriage itself. And uh, when that happens, very often, people suffer in silence because of the ill decisions of people who should show much more responsibility. I received a call a little while ago from a father. He asked me to call his daughter and convince her to go to the chuppah. I said, I should convince your daughter. What's the problem? So she doesn't want to get married. I said, when is the wedding? She says, tomorrow night. I'm like, oh, so you called me a day before. That's great. He says, I didn't realize it's such a crisis. I'm sorry. I said, what happened? She said that she realized certain things, and she really doesn't want to marry this guy. It's going to end up in divorce and misery. So I said, can you, I'm happy she could call me. I'll try to, I'll speak to her. But you realize that if this is what she's feeling, you may have to postpone the wedding until there's clarity. You know, maybe it's going to work out, maybe it's not going to work out, but I don't think you should force a girl into marriage. It's not the right thing halachically and on any other level. Halachically, you're not allowed to force a woman to get married. It's, it's, forbidden, it's forbidden by Torah. It's like, it's, it's like you push it not allowed to. It's a mitzvah that it has to be completely by consent. Just like you don't eat pork at a wedding, you're not going to serve pork at your daughter's wedding. If you force your daughter into a marriage, it's like maybe worse than serving pork. So I think you have to postpone it, and then let's see what's happening. Maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't work out. Maybe it's just an external thing. Maybe it's not serious. He said, no, 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 no. That's not an option. (laughs) The wedding is happening, and I need you to convince her to go to the chuppah with smiles. So I say, so you want me to drug her up or give her a tranquilizer and we'll make her smile? Why don't we do a, the wax museums? We could stuff up a doll that looks like your daughter. We'll get an artist and put her in the chuppah. Uh, for the pictures, it'll be actually better because uh, everything will be perfect and the makeup never gets ruined. And, and, and do a stuffed doll. You could do that also. So he says, what are you... <laughs> he says, Vasilevsta, I need you to convince her. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I can't do this in good faith and conscience. I could listen to her, and I could tell her if I think it's something to be concerned about or not concerned about. But I'm not going to pressure. She's not a robot. She's a person. You wanted to get married. I said, let's think about the alternative. I said, what if the alternative is you put a sign on the hall that due to some situations, the wedding has to be postponed. We apologize for everybody's inconvenience. He starts screaming at me. He says, you know the bushes? the shame I'm going to have in Shul on Shabbos? So I said, I'm sure. I wouldn't be comfortable coming into Shul on Shabbos and people saying, hmm, why was his daughter's wedding pushed off? I wouldn't be comfortable. But I find this quite tragic, that when I suggest that, you become furious because of the shame you're going to have in the community from your wedding being pushed off. What you didn't even mention once is the shame and the suffering that you're allowing yourself to cause your daughter of entering into a marriage with whom somebody, with somebody she doesn't want to. Don't you sense that shame? And which shame do you think is more important? And I'll be, so, I'll be honest with you. If I get a text or an email that this wedding was pushed off, most people, they'll think about it for approximately eight and a half seconds until the next text comes in. And usually the next text comes in in two seconds. The next WhatsApp comes in in a second. The next email comes in in a nanosecond. And even, and even, 
the two gossip guys on your block and the two yentes on your block that are going to talk about it, it's going to be for around two and a half days. And then there's going to be a new parsha because in your community every week there's a parsha. There'll be a new parsha and they'll forget about it. But you want your daughter to remain like this for 70 years so that people shouldn't talk for two hours about you. I said, you have, you have a different God than I do. I'm sorry. He listened. And his response was even more tragic. He said, Rabbi Jacobson, you know and I know that you're 100% right. But this is where I live. Sorry, thank you for help, your help. Bye. In other words, he said, you're right, but this is where I live. What does this mean? What this means is that we come to a point where we often, mamish, replace a real God with mamish fake idols that have nothing to do with any truth. I want to read to you a letter from the Rambam. And this is what I want to conclude with. I, I copied it today. And this will speak for itself. And this was not said by a rabbi in 2018. This was written by the Rambam. The Rambam, hands down, is considered one of the greatest authorities in Jewish history and Jewish law. The Rambam has svarim, but he also has letters that he wrote to people. There's a sefer called Charles Suchuvis Rambam, the responsa of the Rambam. And this is... 12th century, 1100s. There was a Jew whose name was Evadia. Evadia was a convert, a non-Jew who converted to Judaism. As every convert, he needed teachers. Every person needs teachers. But a convert especially, who comes from a non-Jewish home, needs teachers. Evadia got into an argument with his Rebbe, with his teacher. He told, he was a Muslim. He was a Muslim who became a Jew. He told his Rebbe that the Muslims don't worship idolatry. They believe that Muhammad is a prophet, but they worship one God. Which many of the Poiskim, including the Rambam, believe that Christianity had a form, had a definition of idolatry. Islam did not. Islam was based on the error, on the myth that Muhammad is a prophet and he changed the Torah. He gave a new religion, but not on idolatry, it's something else. So this Ayvadya, the convert, told his Rebbe that Yishma'elim, Muslims, are not idol worshippers. And his Rebbe told him that he's wrong, they are idol worshippers. And the Rambam writes to Ayvadya, I'm going to quote, You write to me that your Rebbe responded to you inappropriately, till the point that you got depressed, you, got, you, you were hurt. V'nechlamta. And you got ashamed from his response to you. Another, he didn't just disagree with you, he basically shamed you for your position. And when he saw that, the teacher said on you the following verse respond to a fool according to his foolishness. And he writes to the Rambam this story to get the insight of the Rambam. He was a convert. Converts, by definition, are very innocent and pure. And they don't have usually the chutzpah that uh, home-growing tomatoes have, because they're not home-growing. 
you know, they're not natives. They have the feeling of, 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 of being from somewhere else. So he comes to the Rambam, and this is his Rebbe. And he felt horrible. So he goes to the Rambam to find out, you know, if his feelings of depression are justified or not. So the Rambam responds, the fact is that the Muslims are not Oivdi Avaydezara, they don't worship Avaydezara. There's actually very, there's no idolatry by them. They believe in one God and in complete oneness. That's not the issue. Okay, and he, he discusses that. That's in terms of the content. The fact that your teacher responded inappropriately and made you despondent and depressed and shamed you and called you a fool, and he calls him your Rebbe, this is your Rebbe, he did a great sin. He transgressed a tremendous violation. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I believe that perhaps he didn't realize it was inadvertent. But he has to ask forgiveness. The right thing is for him to ask you forgiveness. Even though you're his student, a teacher doesn't have the right to manipulate or embarrass or put down a student. And then your teacher has to fast. And he should cry out to God. And he should pray. And he should surrender himself. Maybe God will forgive him. Maybe God will forgive him for what he did. And he continues. Is your Rebbe a drunkard? Is he a drunk? Is he an alcoholic? He doesn't know that there's 36 places that the Torah warns Jews not to be insensitive to a convert. Did he forget a pasuk? That biblically the Torah prohibits to say words that can hurt the feelings of a convert. Even if he was right and you were in a blunder, you were lost. Even if he was right. He still should have spoken to you softly and showed you a countenance of dignity and respect. Especially, you were right and he was wrong and he's insulting you. Here we come to the sharpest point, which is really a very psychological point. And he says, and look at what he did. He got angry at you to the point that he publicly shamed an honest convert. Why? Because he claimed that the Muslims are worshipping idols. What did he do? He got furiously angry, which the Gemara Chazal says, somebody who gets angry, it's like Avodah So what he was suspecting them of, he actually fell prey to himself. Look what happened in that conversation. Da! And I want to tell you now, that the obligation that the Torah gave us towards converts, it's awesome. And then he says something quite shocking. When it comes to a father and a mother, the Torah says you have to respect your father and mother and have reverence 
from your father and mother. Al Hanavim on the prophets, the Torah says you have to listen to the prophets. You have to respect Tati and Mami and listen to the prophet. But Ve'efsher Sheikhabid Adam Ve'ira Ve'yishma Mimisha Eino Oyavoy. The fact is, you could respect somebody that you don't love. You could honor somebody that you don't love. You can have reverence from somebody that you don't love. And you could listen to somebody who you don't love. And nowhere in the Torah does it say, love your mother or love your father. Because if it's not there, you can't force a child to do that. The Torah says, respect your father. Respect your mother. You have to have awe, reverence from your father and mother. It doesn't say love. Even the prophets, he says, you could listen, you could respect, you could fear somebody, you don't love them. Val hagerim sivonu on the Geirim, there's a special pasuk, Vahaftem es Hager, a special mitzvah, love the convert. Like there's a mitzvah to love God, there's a mitzvah to love a convert. God himself loves a convert. And if there's not enough, the Rambam writes this to the Ger. He says, now I'm quite astonished that he called you the fool. Let's analyze who's the fool. I'm astonished that he calls you a fool. Why? These are his words. You're a person. You let go of your father. You abandon your father. Your entire household. Your birthplace. Your religion. Your heritage. Your monarchy. Your entire nation. Even though they have unbelievable military and political power. You left it all behind. Why? Because with your mind's eye you wanted to cleave to the one nation that despises all of the great power that they have in the world because it's not based on truth you realize that there's a religion of people who are persecuted and hunted but that it's based on truth you realize that all the religions whatever they have are all stolen from the Jewish religion this one adds, this one subtracts this one changes, this one lies. This one covers up on five cardinal sins using Judaism. This one destroys the foundations of Judaism. This one changes Judaism. You realize that all of them have stolen what they have, the good things from Judaism, and the rest is their distortions. You recognize this, and you started to chase God. And you embarked on a holy path. And you entered onto the wings of the Shekhinah. And you decided to submerge yourself in the dust by the feet of Moshe Rabbeinu. The rabbi of all the prophets. And you desired his mitzvahs. And your heart elevated you to come close to the light and to the life. And to ascend in the steps of the angels. And to rejoice and find pleasure in the joy of the tzaddikim. And you threw out the whole superficial world from your heart. And you don't follow idols and lies and falsehood. Are you the person who should be called a fool? I would never call you a fool, Khalila. Let me tell you my name for you. The Rambam says, my name for you is Maskil, Umeivin, Upikeach, Vahoilech Nechoichos, Talmidoy Shalavram Avinu, Sheiniach Hashem. My name for you is an intelligent, discerning, wise person, a man who work, walks in justice, and straight in straightness, a student of Avram Avinu, who like Avram Avinu, said goodbye to his parents and his birthplace in order to follow God. This is the response of the Rambam.
to Oivad Yehageh. This gives you a little perspective today. In every community, there are many Jews who converted to Judaism, or on another level, they didn't convert to Judaism, but they didn't grow up with it. And at a later point, they came closer to Yiddishkeit, and they too had to say goodbye to their entire culture, lifestyle, behavior, ways in which they lived, sometimes notwithstanding the mockery of their own mother, their own father, their own siblings, their own cousins, who looked at them and said, either explicitly or implicitly, you're a normal girl, you're a normal boy. We raised you, as somebody once told me, I don't know what happened to my child, a mother told me, I raised him with glat treif. I raised him on glat treif. Where did he get these feelings? I told her, you have to check your mezuzahs. <laughs> and that mockery is sometimes the deepest form of mockery. What often happens, though, is they come in to a Jewish community and a Jewish life. In the beginning, they're very idealistic. They see the beauty of Yiddishkeit and the beauty of a Shabbos table and so forth. Then sometimes different things happen. There's sometimes disillusionment and other sources of pain and agony. One of the greatest sources of pain and agony is the self-righteousness that so-called FFB people, from from birth people, or Fablonjot from birth people, show... <laughs> to anybody who didn't grow up in their school system, their nusach, don't have their phobias and insecurities, don't have the same language, don't stick to the same club and click and circle. And very often, Balei Tshuva are converts who want to fit in and want to become socially integrated. They have to give up a part of their truth and their soul in order to fit in. And the great irony and paradox of what happened, the whole Judaism is based on the quest of people for truth, on the quest for people to communicate honestly, without agendas and without politics and without cover-ups. And the people who came to Judaism for that reason are often forced unconsciously by people who grew up with Judaism to start putting on masks and more masks and more masks and more masks just to fit in. And especially when it comes to the great parsha of Shaduchim the great culture of matchmaking and when it comes to getting in children to different schools and different yeshivas and different seminaries <laughs> it's good Avram Avinu wasn't around today because he probably wouldn't be allowed into any yeshiva with a father like Terach and I assume Rivka would have been thrown certainly not accepted by any seminary with a father like Lavan and Lavan's children Rachel, I mean with a father like Psuel and Rachel and Leah I don't know what would have happened to them and there wouldn't be Jews today none of them would have been accepted anywhere Thank God uh, <laughs> somebody else made their shidduch. And what we see here from this Moshe of Skenim is that this issue wasn't an issue only between small people. No people as great as Miriam and Aaron struggle with the same issue. And yet this upset Hashem so deeply because he said, Moshe, you have to understand, what he ultimately values more than anything else is getreishaft, truth, loyalty, integrity, honor, duty, respect, truthfulness, and dedication. In fact, every morning when we describe why Hashem chose Avraham, the Navi decided to use the same words. You found his heart, Neman. What's this quality? 
Avram was a genius. Avram was the greatest theologian and philosopher of his time. Avram discovered monotheism. Avram was an extraordinary person. We have to discuss Avram of Inus Milas. But the Navi describes him almost the greatest quality of Avram, it seems, was, it seems was, you found his heart Nemon, Ketrai, faithful, the Ibigagebenkite. In a way, you could translate it as the Erenskite. Erenskite in terms of um, the, ser- the seriousness that comes with authenticity, not the seriousness that comes with uh, depression or OCD. There's two types of seriousness. There's a seriousness that comes because you're always in a bad mood. There's seriousness that comes with authenticity. Authentic people have a seriousness to them, not because they don't have a sense of humor. There's a seriousness that defies humor because you're in this. People who are miserable hate people who have a good sense of humor because they like to cheer things up and they like everybody to be miserable. But people whose seriousness comes from authenticity, they usually are very good with humor because they don't take themselves seriously. They take the cause seriously. It's a seriousness that comes from authenticity. A person who is very truthful, deep, deep down, when you reach their core, you'll see a seriousness, an unwavering commitment and dedication. It never contradicts humor because it's coming from a place of a deep value, not from a place of escaping misery or agony. And therefore, when Hashem wants to describe Avram, the Navi says, Matzah says, Levavi Neman. Fascinatingly, when he has to explain to Miriam and Aaron who Moshe is, he uses the same word. Bechal Beisi, Neman. When he uses the word Beisi, God doesn't have a home. The whole world is his home, and above the world is his home. But it's also referring to his marriage. Bechal Beisi, in a home, Ishta, the Mishnah says, Beisi zu Ishtai. Rabbi Yossi didn't call his wife only his wife. He called his wife the home, the whole home. He knew that his wife is the whole home. So Bechal Beisi Nemanhu means in his entire home, and his entire marital life, there's one quality above all, and that's the Ne'emonos, the Getreishaft, the Erenskite, the seriousness of a relationship that comes from authenticity, from integrity, from the fact that you have a real, real God that you will sell for nothing and nobody. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.